0: showtime sports presents showtime boxing with eric raskin and kieran mulvaney
1: hello and welcome to another edition of showtime boxing with raskin and mulvaney with my co-host eric raskin i am kira mulvaney and yes people let the record show if you listen to this podcast and faithfully execute its recommendations you will be rich Specifically on the latest episode of our more or less weekly mini podcast, The Money Punch, Eric and I picked our best bets for the weekend. Not necessarily the bets that corresponded to our predictions for, for a particular fight, but the ones that we thought had the best chance of hitting and providing a nice return. And yes, on Friday's edition, my best bet was plus 1800, 18 to one, on Saturday night's Jamel, Charlo, Brian, Castanio bow, ending in a draw, which of course it did. The downside to this prediction, is that you actually have to place the bet to make your money, which I, of all people, did not. Um, Granted, as you consoled me (laughs) while I was punching myself in the face on Saturday night, Vermont, where I live, is not one of those states that has yet legalized sports betting, but still, where there's a will, there is a way, and apparently my will was not strong enough. Uh, To (laughs) quote Jim Brockmeyer,
0: dark times, dark, dark, dark times. (laughs) So, Kieran, I have to ask you a question. Yes? Were you recently visited by an old man who looked an awful lot like what you think you'd look like as an old man? And he <laughs> told you he was a distant relative, and he handed you a grey Sports Almanac, and told you to bet on the results in the almanac, and you'll never lose. Did that happen? No, I was visited by Erickson Lubin. <laughs> I was just about to say that <laughs> at 18 to one, that is a great call. And you are the new Ericsson Lubin. So uh, there you go. You guys are the first two faces on the Mount Rushmore of great draw predictions. Two more still to come. Um, as for you not actually putting money on it, I will re-emphasize: you shouldn't beat yourself up. It's not like you normally bet on your picks. Right. Uh, as you just said, you don't live in a legal gambling state. You've never asked me to place a bet for you. And even if you had decided to bet on this would i be correct to presume you would have bet something like $5 to win 90
1: <laughs> probably yeah. yeah so not
0: exactly life changing money that you missed out on um and and i should say you know in the long run sports betting is more about process than results the results right. will come if you're making good picks at good prices and the money punch podcast gave listeners not one, but two very good picks, if I do say oh. so myself. A- as I feel pretty good about Charlo KO round 7 to 12 at 6 to 1. That was very close to happening, and I wouldn't be shy about making the same bet. Uh, and, and yes, I actually did bet my pick, uh, lost a whopping 10 bucks in pursuit of 60. Um, but I wouldn't be shy about making the same bet in a rematch. Uh, but, you know, now rematch talk. We're, we're officially getting ahead of ourselves on this podcast. Right. right. By the end of the night,
1: uh, I had convinced myself that you know what? if I'd really gone for it, I would have put down a thousand dollars, yeah, that would have <laughs> taken care of my mortgage for the year. but but, of course, the thing to remember is we get hung up on the bets that we or we focus on the bets that we won or would have won, oddly, how we seem to forget all the ones that that we wouldn't have won or didn't win. and you know, I don't think it actually works out even in the end. I think the losses probably end up uh, uh, exceeding the wins.
0: Well, for most people, yes, that is uh, that is the way that sports betting and really all forms of gambling work is that ultimately there's a little something called house edge. Yes,
1: yes. In fact, one might say that's true for life, really, actually. (laughs) I suppose so. All right. Uh, We actually have a pretty busy show for you this week. Uh, We will be previewing this Friday's 20th anniversary Showbox card, and we'll be joined for that discussion by our good and ever-obliging friend, Showbox executive producer Gordon Hall. Uh, There's quite a bit of news, mostly in the form of fight dates being rearranged and new fights confirmed and undercards being filled out. Uh, Eric is going to hit me with his top five list of great comebacks. But first, to San Antonio, Texas, where, as we have already revealed, on Showtime Championship Boxing on Saturday night, Jamel Charlo and Brian Castaño fought to a skillful, momentum-switching, entertaining, but controversial split-decision draw.
0: Yeah, and I think we should jump right in and talk about the scoring. Uh, Steve yep. Weisfeld had it 114-113 for Castaño. Tim Cheatham had it 114-114 even. And Nelson Vasquez had it 117-111 Charlo. (sighs) Uh, I had it 115-113 for Castaño. Um, I had Mm -hmm. had every round exactly the same as Weisfeld, except I didn't do the 10-8 round in round 10. But I did write down these exact words in my notes. Almost a case for 10 8.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so obviously, I'm good with his scorecard and I'm good with 114 114 from Tim Cheatham. He had every round the same as me, except he gave the sixth to Charlo. I didn't struggle to score that round for Castaño, but. Maybe if I rewatched it, I'd see it's close enough to swing the other way. I'm not sure. Um, So those are both fine scorecards. And the draw is a fine result, reflective of the fight I watched in which Castano seemed to be pulling away. But then Charlo rallied well in the last three rounds, had his man hurt more despite arguably losing more rounds. It felt like a drawish type fight. Nelson Vasquez, 117, 111, unacceptable inconceivable, indefensible. Yeah. You can't watch that fight back with me and justify round by round, giving Charlo rounds one, two, four, five, six, eight, ten, eleven, 10, 11, and 12. Those are the rounds he gave him. Round one was not that close. Round four was not that close. Round yep. eight was not close at all. I could maybe concede round one out of those three as the one close enough to get wrong. And mm-hmm. thus, a 115-113 Charlo victory, but even that's a reach. Um, he had Charlo up 5-1 to one at the halfway point. That's almost exactly the opposite of a correct score. Uh, so great, you know, Nelson Vasquez will get a stern lecture, I'm sure, and uh, he won't judge another fight until the next fight card in Texas. Um, and uh, and uh, the last thing that I want to mention about the scoring before I get your score is just to note Castaño's reaction when that 117-111 card was read It was perfect. Just a look of total disgust, kind of disbelief, but also a hint of, of course, somebody handed in that card. Like you knew something like that was coming. So how did you score it, Kieran? And uh, go ahead and uh, tear Nelson Vasquez a new one, if you like.
1: I also had it 115, 113 for Castanio. And uh, by the sounds of it, the same as you, I had Castanio up seven rounds to two going into the final three rounds. Um, Charlo just closed it right up at the end. Mm -hmm. But, but a fair result, but an appalling card from Vasquez. Mm-hmm. You know, what was interesting was, um, we'll get into it, I'm sure, in, in a bit. But there's a little bit of controversy over the scoring of the opening bout of the night as well. Right. And certainly the fans weren't very happy with that. And uh, I think it was our friend Dan Canobio who tweeted something to the effect of, well, this doesn't augur very well for the rest of the card. <laughs> um, and there, there you go. I mean, you can even, you know, we, we like to... Pick on the Texas commission because it deserves to be picked on, but in this particular case, Nelson Vasquez isn't a Texas judge; he's a Puerto Rican judge. Right. You can't even blame it uh, specifically on on you know home state judging or on that commission. That was just man. I, I just don't understand how you can have that card. Uh, some rounds were close, unquestionably so, but there's no doubt whatsoever that after those first few rounds, Castanio had a real head of steam there and, and really took those, those middle rounds, basically swept the middle rounds. I, I just don't understand at all how you could possibly have that kind of card unless you filled it out before you sat ringside. It's, mm-hmm. That was terrible. And the sad thing is that, once again, first of all, that terrible outlier card takes away from what's actually a a decent result very similar actually to the Golovkin Canelo draw in Mm -hmm. their first fight and it also takes away from a very very good fight yes this was a really good quality price fight Eric
0: yeah, it's a kind of a shame. We come right out here talking about that scorecard. Uh, and the other thing we talked about was uh, your correct draw prediction. We, you know, we're how much? Eight, nine minutes into the podcast right now before we're really talking about the fighters. Um, but yeah. but we should do that. Um, Castaño, he was exactly as advertised by everyone who'd studied him. Basically, you yeah. know, Breadman Edwards, Derek James, us. We knew this is a championship level fighter who isn't just a pressure fighter. You know, that underrates his ring smarts, but he does apply serious pressure. He keeps coming in this fight. What we really learned is he's tough as hell. A lesser fighter might have gone down in round two or round 10, but he was in great shape and kept coming even when his legs seemed almost gone at points in rounds 10 and 11. And he throws really sharp short punches those shorter arms become an advantage once you get inside he was able to win the exchanges in close and charlo didn't do a great job preventing him from getting in close if jermel had kept the jab pumping he could have made it you know not an easy fight but certainly an easier fight one where he wouldn't have had to rally furiously for a controversial draw so um you know i was totally impressed by castanio he lived up to the highest level that I thought he was capable of. Um, and and with Charlo, I feel like the takeaway here is that he's has a little bit too much belief in his one-punch power. Um, this is not the first time he's fallen behind yeah. on the scorecards. That's a bad habit. And I thought Derek James was saying most of the right things. Agreed. Yeah. I, I just don't know if he was getting through, because Charlo didn't seem to believe he was behind until Derek said it about four or five different times. But he at least got him trying for the KO and feeling some urgency the last three rounds. He told him flat out, you got to knock him out. Entering the 12th uh, turned out not quite to be true. Uh, if if a draw was satisfactory, he just needed to win the 12th. Uh, but, but that was certainly the right thing to say. So that, those were sort of my feelings on both fighters. A little bit of disappointment in, in Jermel's performance uh, and Castaño. I don't want to say he exceeded expectations, but I think he maxed out what my expectations for him were
1: yeah i i agree and that there were some even some things about castanio that i noticed on saturday night that i hadn't noticed before and and yeah as you said we we talked about the fact that he's a pressure fighter that he he's very good at at throwing these multiple combinations but that he's very defensively responsible for that kind of uh, a fighter what i hadn't noticed before that i saw on saturday night and i think one of the things that probably threw off charlo is when Castaño is kind of waiting at that kind of half distance, Mm. looking for that opportunity to come forward, you would think, okay, this is where Charlo can be landing some shots, right? This is playing into Charlo's hands, theoretically. But there's so much subtle movement going on with Castaño there. He's not just standing there, looking at his opponent, waiting to be hit. His hands are constantly moving. So if you're looking to try and punch between his his guard or between his punches, that's very difficult because that's constantly changing. And some fighters use up too much nervous energy doing that, those little kinds of movement. Castanio doesn't. He's quite relaxed when he's in there doing it. He knows exactly what he's doing. And I remember saying in our, in our preview that I thought one of the things I was a little concerned about from Charlo's perspective was that, you know, we, would, we knew basically what Castaño was going to try to do. And there was a danger that Charlo was perhaps going to get caught thinking a little bit too much there in the ring very early on it looked like i was completely wrong when (laughs) charlo caught him in that Mm -hmm. second round it looked as if charlo was the guy who knew exactly what he was doing and castania was the one who was confused but then that really is exactly what kind of played out there and i think we saw at times again to, to, to follow up from that point that you've made jamel falling into some of these bad habits that we see from him on a regular basis now and sometimes i wonder if he almost gets discouraged when he feels he hasn't hurt his opponent mm. um, when he's landed his best punches. It's almost like he just withdraws into himself just a little bit. And that's when he gives away a lot of those rounds. He did that against Castaño. We've seen him do it before. Um, and then it's not until he lands again and hurts the guy again that he thinks, "Oh my god, I'm in a fight. I better start throwing some punches." <laughs> right. And and that tends to be a little bit of what Jamel Charlo does at times and it most of the time it works for him. And you, he he did come together in time to salvage salvage the draw, but that's that's a feature. It's becoming increasingly a feature of the way Jamel Charlo fights now, not a bug. And I would like to see him be able to get over that hump because there are times when I look at Jamel Charlo and just think he's an absolutely fabulous boxer um, and, and a really good fighter. And then there are other times where you're like, come on, you're not quite living up to your full potential. And I don't want to be too hard on Charlo because he did get a draw, mm-hmm. uh, which is a perfectly reasonable result, notwithstanding Nelson Vasquez's card against a very, very good fighter. And and we have to give Castaño credit. Uh, but that's definitely a thing that, that Charlo needs to work out and, and, and avoid at some
0: point in his career. Yeah, I, I'm i very curious to I wish I could get inside the mind of Jermel Charlo and because there are definitely. A few different possible interpretations of what he was thinking as that fight un- was unfolding. It might be what you said, that uh, he landed a good punch in the second round, and it didn't really get the job done, and he got a little frustrated and zoned out and, and wasn't a- as focused uh, after that. Um, or it could be the opposite, that, oh, I hurt this guy. Now I know. I can hurt him. I'll, right. I'll, I'll get him when I'm ready to get him. I- I'm not too right. concerned. It, it, combined with, he obviously... I don't know if he was quite scoring it in his mind like Nelson Vasquez, but he at least was scoring it as I'm doing just fine in this fight because the first time or two that Derek James tried to tell him you're behind, you got to get something going. he basically said something to the effect of, uh, no, no, I'm I'm not behind. You know, that, that was his response. So yeah, I'm not sure quite what his thoughts were as this fight was going on, but Thankfully, Derek James got through to him late, or or maybe he just landed a punch and hurt Castaño, and that inspired him to open up and and keep going yeah. for it more. Although it seemed in the eleventh that for a while he was letting Castaño off the hook, maybe he just yeah he's obviously has pound for pound level talent, and just ha- doesn't have the consistency at this point. Uh, to to have won a big fight uh, uh, like this and to get into that top ten pound for pound sort of stratosphere.
1: Yeah, yeah, but you you did mention you know, before we move on to the rest of the card mm-hmm. that were there to be a, re, a rematch, you would still feel confident in picking you know uh, depending on what the odds were that same right. kind of a bet. Um, it's hard to imagine these guys fighting and it ever not being a very close and interesting fight it feels to me as if these guys just have two styles that just make for very intriguing and 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 skillful and close fights it's really much as we expected it to be No.
0: yeah i I would agree i think um yeah i'd be curious to see what the pricing would be like because if it again if it's similar if it's something like six to one on charlo by second half of the fight ko i think that's a good price if they give you the 18 to one draw again I could see these guys fighting to a draw a second time. It's not likely, but right. uh, it's you know one in one in nineteen or better likely. Yeah, sure. Um, the thing I'm focused on with a rematch, uh, unfortunately, uh, is that if a rematch is signed, make no mistake, alphabet belts will be stripped. And yeah. uh, just don't let that fool you. It will still be for the true, lineal, legit, only world championship yes. at 154 pounds, assuming neither man loses at the weight in the interim. Um, and, you know, and And the fact that any alphabet group will encourage them to fight other challengers before fighting each other, again, tells you everything yep. you could ever need to know about how much the alphabets care about the sport or the fans.
1: Indeed. Indeed. Uh, shall we move on to the rest of the card? Yeah, let's uh, do that. Let's do that. Um, there was no uncertainty about the winner in the co-main event. Um, Raleigh Romero remained unbeaten by knocking down Anthony Yigit three times on route to a seventh round stoppage. The crowd kind of hated it, um, not least because in addition to landing a lot of right hands, uh, Romero also landed a fair share of elbows, engaged in various other roughhouse tactics, uh, which earned him multiple admonitions and a point deduction from referee Rafael Ramos, who at one point I thought was getting ready to throw hands with <laughs> Romero himself. Um Romero in turn threw shade back at his critics, uh, pointing to the fact in his post-fight interview that Yigit weighed in a shocking 5.2 pounds overweight for their lightweight bout by stating, "quote I fought a tough guy who wasn't in my weight class. I fought a 140 pounder and I fucking stopped him. Simple as that." Um, really, just embracing the heel roll there. Um, with the win, Romero moves to 14-0 with 12 KOs. Yigit drops to 24-2 and one with eight KOs. But man, I just I. I I struggle still to know what to think about Raleigh Romero. I mean, he dominated the fight, scored a knockout over a former Olympian, yet in some ways looks extraordinarily amateurish and sloppy doing it. Um, I just can't decide whether he's actually any
0: good or not. Um, What about you? Do you have the same kind of struggle as I do here? Yeah. um, If I have to lean one way, my sense is that, He's not actually all that good uh, or or maybe he's good, but he's going to finish well, well short of great. Um, But there's also something about him that makes me wonder if he might just exceed all of my modest expectations. You know, I yeah, I'm not a believer, but I can't totally write him off as clearly he does have some pop. He's a good finisher. He's strong. He's athletic. And he sure as hell believes in himself uh, more than yes, anybody else believes in him, it seems. Um, and oddsmakers were right to believe in him. We said on the money punch, we don't get everything right on the money punch, although we, we, you know, we did well with our best bets. But uh, we said that the oddsmakers numbers seem to give Romero a little too much credit and you get not quite enough. And uh, I thought it would be a competitive fight. I was wrong. The odds were correct. Um I thought the payout on Romero by decision was too high and Romero by KO was too low. Again, I was wrong. And, uh, that one, I have another one medium pizza loss to show for it. Um, <laughs> was awkward, but not awkwardly effective, just ineffectively awkward. Um, he never landed anything to earn Romero's respect. After a few rounds, Raleigh was just marching in fearlessly and Yigit was toast at that point. Uh, Bad weekend all around for Yigit. He missed weight, as you noted, by five and a quarter pounds. He got his ass kicked, cut on his face, bloody lip, down three times. And Romero performed pretty well and jumped up on on the ropes to celebrate the knockout. And almost the whole crowd booed him. Um, (laughs) There's something about him that people don't like. Uh, He has permanent who farted face. Uh, I, I don't know if that's a factor in why people don't lo- like him, but he he has this look etched on yeah. his face all fight. That's like, it's a little bit perplexed yeah. and a little bit like he's trying to do Zoolander blue steel, but can't quite get it. Um, but he is a guy based on that crowd booing and on my Twitter feed that people have already decided they love to hate. And that's not a bad thing. He'll get some right. attention and he'll sell some tickets that way.
1: Yeah. Um, talking about Twitter. Uh, Twitter, as always, certainly had plenty to say, (laughs) as you mentioned. Uh, uh, Here's a little sampling of some of the tweets that boxing folks posted uh, during and after the fight. Uh, Junior middleweight contender Julian J. Rock Williams was actually one of the more positive commenters, posting IDK what it is about Raleigh Romero, but I like him a lot. Kind of reminds me of Ricardo Mayorga may not be here for a long time, but it's going to be a good time. And that's mm. not a bad analogy at all, yeah. actually. A lot of power, just really kind of crazy with the way he throws his punches. And, you know, Raleigh's just like one lit cigarette in a post-fight interview shy of being going the full Mayorga there. <laughs> um, uh, up and coming 130-pounder Brandon Lee posted simply, ah, he'd probably be a better MMA fighter than a boxer, LOL. <laughs> um Uh, Romero said post-fight that he wanted Gervonta Tank Davis, uh, which prompted the quote Claressa Shields to to write, LOL, Raleigh's tripping. Don't be calling out Gervonta. Davis himself uh, simply posted a tweet that said, ass, 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 (laughs) although he apparently deleted that by the morning. (laughs) Um, But the tweet of the week comes from Chris Cowan at Tapa Schreiter or something to that effect, who during the fight wrote, Romero fights like a cat who has to go to the vet. Um, (laughs) As someone who still bears the scars from trying to take a pair of feral cats to the vet, uh, I laughed out loud at that and clearly you still find it absolutely <laughs> hilarious
0: uh so that's the tweet of the week and yeah, that yeah that's a great, i think so yeah, that, yeah that's that's the great that's a great choice um chris cowan actually is a former paying ring theory subscriber so you know for a fact that he's smart go. funny has good taste and, and has too much money um i i, I like <laughs> uh, i like those other tweets you mentioned from various boxers ass 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 from gervonta <laughs> should be the tweet of the week runner-up uh although are we sure he was talking about Raleigh? He could have <laughs> well, been talking be, about any number. Of that things. might be why he deleted it. Who yeah. Knows? Maybe. Uh, all right. Let's uh, let's talk about the opening bout on the card. Uh, you already mentioned this about the scoring that we, when this one ended, I figured it would be the biggest scoring debate of the night. Uh, little did I know, in a middleweight ish bout with a 162 pound limit, Emil Vidal Jr. remained undefeated, now 13 and 0 with 11 KOs, uh, but got. Uh, as we both predicted, by far his toughest test against Emmanuel Alim, who is now 18-3-2. It was close all the way, a few tough rounds to score. I had it even after eight rounds, but then the ninth, I thought that was the toughest round to score all fight. I went back and forth, I edged it to Vidal, and then I thought Vidal had more in the tank and won the 10th. So I scored it 96-94, Vidal, would have been just fine with a draw. One of the judges did see it a draw, 95-95, but the other two gave it to Vidal, 97-93. So he gets a majority decision. Uh, The slight majority, as polled by Showtime after the fight on Twitter, favored Aleem, as did Showtime unofficial scorer Steve Farhood. Kieran, how did you have it? Um, And is is Aleem officially now just one of those hard luck guys who, you know, this is his fate, fight well, never quite break through? Uh, and, And what did we learn about Vidal and is this a fight in which he likely learned something that can help him going forward
1: I had it a draw as well 95 95 with again the the caveat that uh, as you alluded to some of those rounds were very close did you like uh, the fact that Aleem was throwing more of the punches a lot of the time or the fact that when Vidal did throw and land they were they were really effective punches I thought this was as good as we've seen Aleem actually even Mm -hmm. in some of his other tough luck draws and losses and yes it does seem to be that he's one of these guys he's settling into that pattern of being good enough to give favored fighters a hell of a fight and a real shock and just not get away with the decision um and just very closely, I, I thought 97, 93 was, was wide, to be honest, um, uh, in favor of Vidal, but, uh, yeah, I, I was impressed. I thought, I thought Alim's energy was good. I I liked the way that, you know, Ronnie Shields was getting frustrated with him for standing in there and fighting, uh, Vidal toe to toe, but I think Vidal forced that to happen. And it was just, Aleem was just responding to the situation when he was able to stick and move. Uh, he did do that. Um, you know what did we learn about Vidal I think it's tough to be too tough on the kid first of all he got he got a a win against really tough opposition and I think what it showed us is the difficulty how difficult it is when you've got a young guy who keeps knocking guys over early um, He came into this fight having only had twelve fights totaling thirty two rounds of pro experience um and uh, 18 of those 32 rounds came in just two fights. So the bulk of his of, of his career is 10 fights with 14 rounds. Inevitably, you're going to at some point come up against the guy who's not just going to fall over when you right. hit him. And sometimes if that comes too early, you don't always have that expertise, that knowledge to know how to overcome it. Vidal just about did here. Uh, I would hope that what he learned is that Not to take away the fact that, oh, hey, even when I'm up against really tough guys, I can still, just by landing uh, my harder punches, I can can still get away with the win. I hope he realizes that at some point there's going to be maybe somebody better than Aleem who's going to be able to stand up to his punches and give it back to him. And he's going to have to have a little bit of a plan B. What I did like about Vidal was the variety he showed in his punches. I thought he showed some really good body punching mm-hmm. that was really key to the victory. Of course, that one outstanding left hook to the body that almost folded Aleem <laughs> yep, in half yep. in about the sixth round. And full credit to Aleem for sucking that up. And by the time he got to the corner, he's like, yeah, I gave that round away, didn't I? Um, <laughs> being able to to withstand that, I thought was a lot of credit for Aleem. Um, it's going to be tough for Alim because he's going to be seen now as one of these guys who who produces really good performances is going to test the guy but isn't necessarily going to get the win and he's going to be perceived that way by judges before a fight even mm-hmm. starts I did like the calmness of Vidal uh, I would like to have seen him maybe uh, show a little bit more urgency at times, but this was a good tough fight. I think he will have learned an awful lot from it. I think I probably came away with a higher thinking he has a higher upside than I thought going in. I wasn't like like you said, we were both a bit uncertain right. about Vidal going into this. He did come away with a win against a good experienced opponent who's fought much tougher opposition than he has. It looks like he's got a pretty decent upside. I don't know how big that upside is. But he's definitely got some potential there. He's got work to do, of course. I wouldn't mind seeing him actually, you know, not be pushed too hard, too fast. He's still only 13 and 0. Um, But it looks as if, you know, that horse may have may have left the stable already. Um, He's got some upside. I'm curious to see where he's going to wind up.
0: Yeah. And and, and I'll just uh, quickly note that uh, two truly outstanding fights out of three on this show. uh, Yeah. Got to be in the running for 2021 fight card of the year so far
1: absolutely um so that's this past weekend showtime card dealt with uh let's look forward to next weekend's this friday july 23rd showbox returns for its 20th anniversary show this time with a three-fight card from grand island nebraska and we will be marking the anniversary with a couple of bonus podcasts this week including a really enjoyable conversation with the announced team of barry Tompkins, steve farhood and raul marquez and you definitely won't want to miss that one uh To help us handicap Friday's card and to share his thoughts on 20 years of Showbox, we're joined by the man who not only put Friday's card together, but has put the whole series together to the extent that it's regularly referred to as his baby. He is a great friend of the podcast, the executive producer of Showbox, Gordon Hall. Gordon, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Yeah, great to have. uh, Thank you for having me. And, uh, yeah, looking looking forward to next week's show for sure.
1: And before we begin examining that card we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on the fact that the series is celebrating its 20th anniversary and you know when, when one takes a step back the idea of a boxing show featuring almost exclusively boxers who even most boxing fans have never heard of um, it's hard to imagine getting it off the ground let alone it lasting 20 years did you ever imagine when you started out that it could possibly endure the way it has
2: uh no, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I say that, you know, because the fact is, you know, who would have thought a series of up and coming prospects unknown, uh, you know, would would be something that would take off. Uh, but what we did know is if we could get the young, talented fighters, first of all, get, you know, an A side, as they call them, though, I never looked. I think to me, I always try to make everything as both A sides. Mm. But if you can get the talented fighters to be able to sell the fact that you're seeing tomorrow's champions today, you know, and in, you know, prospects match tough, that the concept was there. Now, could we execute it? I don't know. I didn't know. But what allowing in the beginning to only have two promoters, you know, having TV in boxing is having power in boxing and that allowed main events. Uh, in this case, one of the two promoters, along with Frank Warren, to sign young top fighters, because they had this series that could feature young prospects. So they were able to go out and get, you know, Mexican Olympian Francisco Bajado, or, you know, Juan Diaz, who went 105 and five as an amateur, you know, Jeff Lacey, who, of course, was a, a big staple on and championship. He went 209 and 15. I mean, Rocky Juarez, you know, really top uh, prospects. So having those was a really good something to hang our hat on. And then, of course, you know, Frank Warren had Ricky Hatton, this unknown British fighter who's always been one of my favorite fighters. And of course, he had a lot of other fi- less talented fighters. But, um, you know, when we think about you know, the beginning years, uh, we were able to secure with these promoters, you know, some really talented fighters. And then, of course, always and still to today is t- was to try to match them tough. Yeah, I
0: I think that's really the key that that you that you hit on is the fact that you don't don't necessarily try to look for an A side and a B side. You look for two A sides. I think that's a huge part of of what has set the series apart. You're not always going to get it that the fight is super competitive. But if you're at least striving to, uh, it seems that's been your your focus. and, And that's a key to keeping it on the air for 20 years.
2: Yeah. In the beginning, that was the challenge because with only working with two promoters, it sort of limits you with, you know, enforcing, uh, you know, the having every matchup being tough. I mean, these are very young, talented, young, as I stress, and talented (laughs) fighters. Well, there's going to be different agendas between managers, promoters and trainers versus, you know, a TV executive. Uh, you know, I I'm always going to try to have every matchup, regardless of where they are in their career, to be, you know, a step up, hopefully, you know, and they're going to want to, in some cases, bring them along a little slower than I may wish. So, you know, every matchup is a negotiation, um, What strengthened our brand uh, was when we were able to, you know, become more of an open house. And, you know, we started to work with Golden Boy and I had a relationship with David Skowitz that I worked behind the scenes to try to think what we could do possibly before I would sell it to, you know, then Jay Larkin or Ken Hirschman uh, to say, this is a good idea. It's not conflicting with our any politics on our championship platform. And uh, and it's really going to be best for this series. And we did that in my relationship with Carl Moretti at Top Rank you know, we were able to put together, uh, put some other promoters in the mix who also had a lot of talented young prospects. And then we started, once you do that, you start to create some competition with uh, promoters. And also we added, I mean, we've had over 35 promoters on Showbox, and I always tried to consider it an open house. And we try to match. If there's one promoter primarily in a Showbox show we're working with, we uh, always I'm always going to be talking to other promoters to see who they may have in the same weight classes as, say, that primary promoter to get everybody involved in these shows. But the adding of multiple promoters and creating an open house, it uh, it really made it a competitive marketplace for getting dates on Showbox and in turn were able to make more competitive matchups. Right. Okay. So looking
0: ahead to to this Friday's 20th anniversary card, uh, the main event shows that prospects can take many shapes and forms. Uh, Calvin Hot Sauce Henderson is 14-0-1 with 10 KOs, but he's 31 and has only been a professional for five years. Um, Despite that late start and his relatively advanced age, you must have seen something in him that you like to, to feature him in a main event. What is it about Henderson that jumped out at you?
2: Well, I'd like to say the fact that he graduated from the University of Arkansas with a music degree. Hmm. But, wow. frankly, that's not it. Okay. But, um, <laughs> but he did, and uh, which makes him sort of unique for fighters. Um, yes, he didn't turn pro until his mid-20s, uh, but his amateur record uh, is, I wouldn't say, you know, elite, but it's, it's very solid. He had 70 amateur fights. He fought in many of the tournaments, the National Golden Gloves, the Olympic qualifiers. Um, you know, he is tall. He, uh, uh, you know, likes to work behind that jab. You know, he can be a little uh, aggressive, which we saw in the Cenk-Plana fight. He was aggressive. Of course, Plana is very difficult to fight, and he really needed to be uh, uh, aggressive. Listen, he's undefeated. He certainly hasn't faced anybody, uh, you know, I don't think at this point, like an Isaiah Steen, um, you know, he's been active because it's his third fight in 2021, which is pretty good. You know, Steen's been out for nine months, so he's going to come in prepared. You know, he's in his second scheduled 10 rounder when, you know, Steen hasn't had been in the 10 rounder yet. So um, I think that it it's uh, he is a talented fighter. To the point of 31 years old, we don't see a lot of prospects at that age unless they're Eastern European and had these long amateur careers, uh, you know, before they turned pro. So every fight for him is at this point in his career is a must-win, and uh, it will be that against Isaiah Steen so you mentioned Isaiah Steen,
1: and you know he's got a similar record uh, he's 15 and 0 one no decision 12 KOs but his biography does read a little bit more doesn't it uh, like a traditional prospect he's 24 again had a you know decent amateur career he's even the step brother of, of contender Charles Conwell and in his last outing he stopped an opponent who'd previously gone the distance with good fighters uh, Austin Trout and Caleb Plant so what can you tell us about him and, and how do you expect him to match up against Henderson
2: Well I know he's managed uh he's promoted by um uh, you know Tony Holden and Lou DiBella. He's managed with by Dave McWater. Dave McWater's a very good eye for has a very good eye for for prospects and um, you know, his split team management. They have a tremendous stable of fighters. He's got a good eye. Uh you know, Isaiah, he's twenty four years old, but and he's also been a five year pro. We're seeing this, mm. right? With uh, Ron Ennis and with Devin Haney and with, you know, all of these fighters, uh, you know, even with uh, Janelson Boca Chico, who's also on the card, they're all turning um, pro at an earlier age. But, you know, Steen had 100 amateur fights. Uh, You know, he's uh, a talented fighter. Uh, He, again, is a fighter that sort of works behind the jab, and he, you know, boxes. Um, I saw him knock down a couple people with the left hook, and I asked McWater, you know, does he, you know, he's a boxer to me, He looks like he jabs, you know, what about his body shot, you know, and, and, you know, his comment to me is that, you know, he will box, but, you know, as he starts to wear down his opponent, he will go inside later in the fight, you know, after wearing a guy down. Mm-hmm. And I think this matchup is two boxers, uh, some a fights going to have to break out at some point during this fight you know so so it is a little bit of an intriguing matchup to me but uh, you know an important fight for both fighters at this point in their career certainly more for henderson mm.
0: All right. Well, you mentioned uh, the guy in the co-feature uh, who has my favorite name to say in all of boxing, Janelson Figueroa Boca Chica, just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> uh, he's he's going up against uh, Chenard Bunch over 10 rounds. It's a welterweight fight. And we've seen Boca Chica a couple of times on Showbox, uh, destroying Nicholas Flaas in one round and most recently outpointing Mark Reyes in a much tougher fight. What have been your impressions of him and what kind of challenge does Bunch, uh, who has the right nickname, by the way, Showtime, uh, what kind of challenges does Bunch present?
2: Well, Bunch, first of all, is, is interesting to me because, frankly, I had not heard of him before. I was doing a little research and I, I don't know if, I, you know, the I saw I, in researching him, I couldn't believe this was true, that he had 400 amateur, you know, bouts, uh, but I did see that he was you know, managed by Russell Peltz. And I actually (laughs) called Russell Peltz, uh, you know, and, you know, is Chouinard Bunch really with you? And, you know, he's, I'm not, I don't have the answer yet. And I'm very curious of why he wasn't, you know, signed to anybody. Uh, You know, he's managed by Russell, which says a little right there. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it brought along very quickly. I mean, he's 22 years old. He's had, you know, 17 fights in 20, 27 months. Uh, He was a amateur, won the bronze, uh, it's going to be unbelievably so his sixth fight this year. I mean, in the footage I saw, he's got a quick jab. He's strong and he has some power. And his only loss was in his fourth fight to Paul Kroll, who's still undefeated. Uh, and if you look at it on BoxRec, certainly he's going to hes like 300 in the world. And, hes you know, there's not really a lot there. But there are credentials that make me intrigued to see him. Uh, come on t- to Showbox. He has the credentials. And I think Janelson Boca Chica, to me, is a fighter that people uh, like to see. Certainly I do. Yeah. He sometimes uh, he's 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 aggressive, almost aggressive to a fault, uh, and he makes for exciting fights. He wants to put on a good show. And, uh, you know, he went 60 and five in the amateurs. He's not, not a slouch. He's coming off of a great fight, you know, with the undefeated Mark Reyes, as you say. This fight on the card is the one that I'm most interested in because could Boca Chica run into, um, uh, you know, a bunch punch? <laughs> so so I, I don't know, but I think anything could happen in this because Boca Chica, if he's too aggressive, you know, he could get clipped. Um, but it's an, it's an interesting matchup again. Um, you know, Bunch's only loss came in his fourth fight. So, uh, you know, it wasn't like, uh, and he's had a tremendous amount of, he's going to be, he's going to be ready for sure. Yeah. um and opening up
1: the anniversary broadcast
2: uh, a pair of featherweights
1: martino titan jewels who's 10-0 with two ko's against aram uh, billy the warrior of agian who's 10-0-2 with four ko's we recently saw him on showbox battle to a majority draw with jose nuñez uh looking at their records and also the way that they themselves describe their fighting styles this feels like of the fights on the card this is the closest one to most likely a pure boxing matchup rather than a fight is that fair to
2: say well, I would say that if anybody's gonna get in a fight, it's gonna be Avagon. Mm, okay. All right. So Avagon's a little shorter. We know he's a pressure fighter. Um, and you know, he uh he has to press the action against Jules because Jules is gonna box, box, box. And and Jules feels he has better skills than Aram. So it's it's if you're Jules and you're thinking that Avagon's going to be pressuring like what seems to be his M.O. a lot, then it's a good style matchup for you because you're going to be able to just, you know, box around him. And, you know, Jules is coming off of a victory against uh, a top rank fighter. I believe it was in the MGM bubble of which he had a fighter coming at him. And, uh, you know, he uh, he was able to box and and, uh, you know, get the get the victory. So I see this fight sort of similar to his. His his last fight, uh, I think it's a, I think it's more of, a, you know, the bull with the matador in some ways. Right. I think and I'm going to see bringing it more, uh, you know, Abagon to the point of prospects. We know we had 300 amateur fights. Listen, we we we've had him on before. He's going to have to come. You know, number one, it's a must win for him. Number two is he's going to have to sell himself. You know, he's coming off of a draw on his last uh, showbox appearance versus Jose Nunez. You know, his last four fighters he's faced, though, were undefeated, going 2-0-2. So he's Mm. been matched competitively. Avagon needs to bring the heat, as always, but he needs to start from the first bell Mm. because he's admittedly a slow starter. Mm. So um, I think it's a good style matchup. And again, um, you know, battle of unbeatens. Yeah, right.
0: All right, so last thing, spinning it uh, forward even beyond uh, this Friday, um, I, I know we haven't had a lot of showbox cards this summer, uh, even though Showtime Boxing generally has been highly active, and I understand a lot of that is because COVID protocols and the like have made it a bit cost prohibitive given the, the budget that you have. Are you hopeful that we may be able to see more showbox cards in the latter part of the year?
2: Yeah, Absolutely. Um, we know that August is going to be a very uh, busy schedule for us. Um, you know, we're looking to hopefully play something in September, Mm -hmm. you know, with the addition to Bellator on Showtime and going, you know, on some Fridays, um, it makes it a little more, you know, a little more difficult just to schedule the dates, frankly. Uh, you know, the layoff recently was COVID related. Uh, in, in, in some ways because of the costs and also scheduling related, but we're going to have, you know, we're, we're testing people next week in yes, Grand Island, Nebraska. I'm sure you both have been there before. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah. If you want to stay at the best hotel in town, it's the uh, Fairfield Inn and Suites. So just okay. in case you get it <laughs> uh, <good> now, <laughs> but. But um yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna be there. You know, we're testing people next week. We're incurring a lot of costs that so we might normally on show box and you know, it's not a you know, a real big budget series, but the importance of the series and how it complements our championship boxing and what it does for the sport. This this series will not go away. I think it's important to the showtime and I also think it's important to uh boxing. Yeah. So and even – uh, Espinosa is, is a big advocate for the series. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm very optimistic that, you know, that we'll be back in the fall with, with more shows.
0: Yeah. And so, uh, to spin it even, even further into the future than that, uh, are, are you, uh, saying that you predict a showbox 40th anniversary celebration 20 years from now?
2: Absolutely. All right. Awesome. <laughs> I love it. <that. laughs> I may not be here for it, but, uh, you know.
1: (laughs) Yeah, nor may I. Eric will be podcasting by himself, maybe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Podcasting won't even exist in 20 years. That's true. That's true.
1: Exactly. Hey, Gordon, look, thank you so much as always. It's always just a a treat having you on and really much deserved congratulations on 20 years of Showbox. It's been a fantastic achievement and it's been great for the sport as well as for Showtime Boxing and just very, very many congratulations to you for that.
2: Great. Thank you. I appreciate you having us. Having me on, I say us, because all of the what we do on Showbox is all of us at Showtime. And, you know, there's a great deal of people that contribute to this series. And it's important to a lot of people. And the fact that it's being recognized, I'm happy for everybody that participates in it.
1: Awesome. Thank you very much, Gordon.
0: Thanks, as always, to Gordon. And one more time, congratulations to him and the whole Showbox team for 20 years of broadcasts. It's prediction time for us. Uh, I was ahead by one point, 44.43, coming into Saturday night's card in San Antonio, and there was no change to that margin. We both picked Vidal by KO and got one point each. We both picked Romero by decision and got one point each. And we both picked Charlo by decision and got zero points. Uh, <laughs> your your great call on best bets is worthless here. <laughs> you, you really had a better night than I did in, in terms of accuracy. You said Castaño would make it damn close, and uh, you picked only a split decision for Charlo. You didn't think uh, Yiget would be as competitive against Romero as I thought he would. But alas, none of that shows That's up on right. the scoreboard. 46 45 because this is Showbox, we'll only pick the main event and kieran it's your turn to pick first how do you see calvin hot sauce henderson and isaiah z it's
1: really difficult isn't it to make picks with fights like these um and uh coming into this with no knowledge about these guys beforehand what i've gleaned here is purely from youtube footage that i've been able to watch uh once we knew that these two guys were, were going up against each other um And it feels from what I've seen as if Steen has that tiny bit more of an X factor. He has the smoother boxing from what I can tell. I think his upper body movement is better and more natural. I think he's got a greater variety of punches. I'm not how good he actually is yet or how good he actually could be, but he looks like he's got a relative fluidity about him. But Henderson against that, he's much more of a stand-up boxer. Working constantly behind the jab, as, as Gordon mentioned. Um, he doesn't always look entirely comfortable when he starts throwing the right hand behind it, but from what I can tell, it looks like he's improving a lot from fight to fight. And sometimes, you know, you've got, especially at this kind of level, if you've got one guy who's already got a really good, solid, uh, technically sound jab, often he can be the one who comes out on top in these kind of battles. I can absolutely see a scenario where Steen. Just can't get past that long Henderson stick. But I just have the feeling he has the better tools, the better ability, the more natural boxer. Uh, And although I see him having real trouble with that Henderson jab and getting possibly pretty badly marked up, I think he might just have enough to get a close unanimous decision win.
0: Okay. Um, Well, we have the same pick in terms of the fighter to win, but not the way in which... Uh, we see that fighter winning uh, hot sauce. Henderson looks to me more like a very good club fighter than a true world class talent. Um, he's solid. He has that jab. You mentioned he can punch a bit, but doesn't appear to have that next level. that something special. Mm-hmm. And it seems you, you, you saw the same thing. Um, his struggle to a draw with Jenk Plana is forgivable. We've noted in past Showbox yep. discussions, how tricky and tough Plana is, although it's still not a good result for Henderson. Um, you know, Gordon said they don't look for A-sides and B-sides. But if we're talking about upsides, from what I've seen, Isaiah Z. Wopstein is the guy that yeah. has that here. He's faced nobody so far. This is his toughest test on paper, without a doubt. But seems to have the moves, the athleticism, the power, the confidence. He's not just the more traditional prospect. I think he's the better prospect in this fight. Now, we really don't know enough about either guy to know if Steen's power is enough to hurt Henderson, you know, does Henderson have much of a chin? Don't know. Um, But I'll go out on a limb and say that the fight becomes one-sided enough in Steen's favor that even if Henderson does have a good chin, the stoppage still comes. I'm saying Steen KO eight. And and, and by the way, just to quickly circle back to something Gordon said about the co-feature, which the one he said he expects it to steal the show, uh, Chenard bunch being managed by russell peltz that tells you <laughs> sight unseen that bunch is yes. he's either talented tough or both so I, i'm really yeah. looking forward to that fight who is uh Chenaid bunch fighting Eric? uh, uh let's see let me look it up here ah yes it's to nelson figueroa Boca there you go
1: all right let's turn to the week's news uh the main event this week is a continuation of the main event last week as the long delayed third meeting between tyson fury and deontay wilder now officially has a new date october 9th uh everything else venue undercard broadcaster remains the same the fight was of course scheduled to take place next saturday july 24th at the t-mobile arena in las vegas as a joint uh, espn fox pay-per-view but fury and members of his camp Tested positive for COVID the week before last, causing the fights for the postponement. Uh, Eric, I was mildly hesitant to go on a full rant last week because I gave Fury and crew something of the benefit of the doubt, giving uncertainty over vaccinations, and then there's the virulence of the Delta variant. Uh, with what's come out subsequently, maybe I was being too generous. Um, Fury co-promoter Bob aram stated that Fury had received one shot of the Pfizer vaccine, which we knew, but that he actually chose not to receive a second shot uh, out of concern for the possible side effects so close to the fight. <laughs> Amazing. Um, meanwhile, there's been there's something of a social media storm over pictures of Joseph Parker, who was in camp with Fury and was reported to have been one of those who tested positive cage side for a recent UFC event in Vegas. Um, and Fury last week out and about with folks in Las Vegas casinos and car dealerships. but. Parker said reports he had tested positive were wrong, that he tested negative and was continuing to take appropriate precautions. Fury apparently tested negative on Tuesday, was given permission by doctors to travel shortly afterwards, so presumably is not considered infectious. It's all a bit of a mess. Um, Should I have been a bit more ranty in in hindsight, or is this just now a storm that's passed and a combination of just life in a pandemic and maybe a little bit of over-ego reporting and... It's the main takeaway that at least the fight's still on. What's your take
0: on all of this right now? Well, I'd say the main takeaway is definitely not that the fight is still on. It was never in doubt that they would reschedule it. um, And it's still backed up enough that our wait for a potential Fury Joshua fight is extended. And there are still ways that things can go wrong between now and October 9th. Yeah. Um, so so the new date, that's not the main takeaway for me. Although I guess that is the biggest straightforward news story of the week, that the fight now has this official new date. I think you were appropriately ranty last week. Um, okay. <laughs> I mean, clearly Fury is not an anti-vaxxer. If he got one shot, uh, right. he's just sloppy and not great at math in terms of understanding that that one day of rough side effects a month or two out from the fight which you know some people have one bad day many people feel nothing at all but you know he did a bad job calculating the risk of one rough day versus you know catching covid um i don't want to get all ranty either everyone knows where we stand the scientists did amazing things and have done all they could do to bail humanity out. And humanity is coming up short. Misinformation is keeping the pandemic going and mask mandates are returning as a result. Mm -hmm. And Vegas is a particular hotspot, which leads me to the big takeaway. If those photos of fury maskless and mingling in Vegas are indeed from last week, there seemed to be a tiny bit of debate about that, but Uh, It seemed people were coming down on the side of, yes, these are legit. They're from last week. And it's Tyson Fury. I have no reason to doubt that he would do that sort of thing. If so, it's just an awful look. Um, Mm -hmm. Even if he's safe and and it's safe from a viral perspective, dude, you just blew a fight worth tens of millions of dollars. You pushed it back two and a half months. You got sloppy and messed up a lot of people's plans. Can't you think about appearances a little tiny bit? Can't you lie low for a few weeks and... Make it look like you're all about making sure this fight happens in October. Appearances matter. Messaging matters. And somebody, maybe many somebodies, uh, are going to see Fury out and about maskless right after getting COVID and decide COVID is no big deal. And they're going to catch and spread some COVID. Uh, That's how this works. Um, I'm vaccinated. My wife is vaccinated. My daughter is vaccinated. My son will get vaccinated in the fall when he turns 12. I'm not concerned about our health. Uh, My father-in-law had a kidney transplant several years ago. He got the vaccine as soon as he possibly could, and he signed up for testing at University of Pennsylvania to see if he's producing antibodies. And he isn't, as it seems most or all people with transplants aren't. So Mm. he can't go back to being maskless in public, Mm. to hanging out indoors with anyone other than the people that he knows are safe until covid isn't really around and people like fury doing the wrong things and setting the wrong yep. examples examples that people will follow helps keep this thing going um so i, I guess kind of like you last week i got rantier there than i meant to um but uh, so be it uh let, let's move on to the news undercard which doesn't allow us to move on entirely because the really? news co feature this week is also covid related um, if you are one of those who wanted to attend the Triller-Verse combination boxing match rap battle at the Hulu Theater at Madison Square Garden in New York City on August 3rd, headlined by a bout between Michael Hunter and Michael Wilson and a rap battle between Dipset and The Locks. I guess those are humans, not just bagel toppings, but I wouldn't know. I'm I'm middle-aged and quite washed, as we've established. Um, I can't believe that these are words I just said on a podcast. But uh, if you want to attend this show, you will need to be fully vaccinated to do so. Uh, Would-be attendees must provide proof upon entry of having received their final dose of the COVID-19 vaccine no later than 14 days before the event date. Exceptions will be made for children under the age of 16 who may provide proof of a negative antigen or PCR COVID-19 test and who may only attend with a fully vaccinated adult. Uh, Kieran, before we look at the rest of the news undercard, any comments on this? Is it something you'd like to see at more events? Uh, yes, it is actually. Uh, we're
1: not done with rants here yet. Um,
0: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> look, we're
1: now uh, 16 months into this pandemic in this country. Uh, other countries have been enduring it even longer. If, after all this time, with at least 625,000 people dead in this country, at least I think it's four million dead worldwide, and probably many more, um, if after all this time you have access to the vaccine, you have no medical conditions that preclude you from getting the vaccine. And you are choosing still not to get the vaccine because perderderder freedom or whatever, <laughs> then you honestly you shouldn't get to be a fully functioning member of society. Like if you are yep. choosing not to do what society needs you to do, then you get to miss out. That's the way it is. Um, the way things are in the United States, it's not going to be a situation like it is in France, where I believe it's it's legally mandated that to attend events you have to have had a vaccine. It's up to organizers of events or owners of restaurants or whatever to make those kind of rules for themselves uh, where they're able to. Um, you know, I, I have no problem with using all kinds of carrots to encourage people to take vaccines, A beer entered into prize-winning drawers, being straight up bribed with money. I don't care what it takes. Because we just need to get as many people vaccinated as possible. But if those carrots go with sticks, too, so be it. Uh, My one concern with this is that it was sort of prevent immunocompromised people, other people who can't take the vaccine um, from attending these kind of events. But as long as we're still having so many people walking around unvaccinated, probably the last thing they want to do, such people is be in the Hulu theater anyway. But um, look, for the rest, if you don't want to get vaccinated, then guess what? being denied the opportunity to watch some boxing is probably not the worst thing that's going to happen to you.
0: Agreed. Yes.
1: (laughs) There. Did have a little rant.
0: (laughs) We've we've had quite a few rants. uh, And and I'd love to say uh, we're done ranting, but who knows? More rants to come next week, quite possibly. It's entirely possible.
1: Let's let's focus on people punching each other in the face. Uh, Let's go run through the uh, news undercard. It's a strong collection of new and confirmed fight dates. The, Jake Paul, Tyrone Woodley Showtime pay-per-view has been set for Sunday, August 29th from Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, I have to say I, I like the way the undercard is coming together. Uh, Amanda Serrano defends her featherweight titles against Yamaleth Ricardo. Charles Conwell uh, faces off against Mark DeLuca in a junior middleweight event. And Showbox alum Montana Love will take on the dreaded TBD. Uh, the night before, on Showtime Championship Boxing, uh, David Benavidez returns against uh, Jose Uscategui in a super middleweight title eliminator in Phoenix. Uh, and as we uh, sort of flagged recently, it is status quo ante on August 14th from the Dignity Health Park in Carson, California. as Guillermo Rigondo, who was originally scheduled to face John Real Casimiro, then stepped aside to allow Casimiro to face Nonito Donaire now takes his place again following Donaire's withdrawal. They will top a Showtime Championship Boxing bantamweight triple header that will also feature unbeaten contender Antonio Russell, brother of Gary Antonio and Mr. Gary Russell, against Emmanuel Rodriguez and Rashid Warren against Damian Vasquez, uh, away from Showtime. Matchroom has announced that the rematch of what is probably the clubhouse leader for upset of the year. Uh, Mauricio Lara versus Josh Warrington will take place in Leeds, England on September 4th on the Zone. And Golden Boy has confirmed that outstanding young welterweight contender Virgil Ortiz takes on former Terence Crawford challenger Egeges Mean Machine and in Frisco, Texas on August 14th. So plenty of fights added to the docket this week. We will, of course, be looking at all of these in greater depth and nearer the time. But for now, what stands out to you there?
0: So that's a solid list—a mix of yeah, uh, new fights and and fights we kind of sort of knew about, but now they're made official. Um, I'll keep my comments uh, brief. We're pretty deep into the show here. I'll just hit on a few of these. I'll say uh, those are some quality professional fighters on the Paul Woodley undercard. But I will still root for nothing but quick knockouts on a Sunday Indeed. evening <laughs> card because we are <laughs> typically Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon podcasters. Um, yeah. This is probably the last chance for Uzcategui, Um, But you know, I'll watch Benavidez against anyone at this point. And uh, if Uskatsuki fights with a little desperation, uh, that could be fun. Um, and bring on any and all Russell brothers. Um, you know, of course, Mr. Gary Russell has mm-hmm. not fought since February 2020 and has nothing scheduled. He might not even make his annual appearance in 2021, oh. thus ending a six-year streak of fighting exactly one time in each calendar year. He's 33 years old now, so that kind of sucks if he doesn't fight this year. Yep. But 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 I will take alternative Gary Russell's in action over no Gary Russells at all.
1: Absolutely. All right, to conclude the podcast, it is time for this week's top 5 list. Uh last week I set Eric the challenge of coming up with five truly successful career comebacks. and with no restrictions from my end on how to define comeback. No limits on how long a boxer had to have been out of the ring, nor on the reasons for his or her ring absence. Uh, I can reveal to those listening that, Eric, you mentioned to me a day or so ago that you were having fun with this assignment. So uh, take it away. What you got for us?
0: All right. Yeah, I did have fun. um, And, you know, you promised me an easy one. Uh, And in two important respects, it was easy. First, it didn't take a whole lot of research. I I, I know most of these boxer stories. I had a preliminary list of names to consider with just about 20 minutes or so of thinking and Googling. Uh, And the second part that was easy, the number one spot was easy for me, at least. (laughs) Um, Some might disagree, but I think there is a clear choice for greatest career comeback of all time. But what was hard was everything else. Uh, Deciding who made the top five and who didn't, putting them in order. I flip-flopped back and forth on a lot Mm. of that. I have about 15 honorable mentions. Um, That part of this was very challenging, but fun. Um, And and, and hopefully makes for an interesting discussion. And and that's more important to me than whether or not it's easy. Uh, So, uh, okay, preamble over onto my list. And I'm going to do one thing a little weirdly here. I'm going to start with my number six. Because okay. I had a real struggle deciding who the five should be. Uh, and this guy, he was in my list. He was three. He was four. He was five. I was moving guys around. Ultimately, he lands as six. But he deserves not to just be lumped in with the honorable mentions. Um, but I'll keep it brief. My number six is Vinny Pazienza. Uh, mm-hmm. He broke his neck in a car accident. He was told he might never walk again. He would definitely never box again. And he returned to the ring 13 months later. The only reason he's not in my top five is that his career post-accident was nothing spectacular. He had some good wins, no great wins, no major titles. So amazing comeback story, but it ultimately only lands him at number six.
1: Yep, completely reasonable. Got to have him on the list. Okay.
0: So at number five, I have a heavyweight champion who was out of the ring for several years and made a comeback to win the title. No, not? that heavyweight champ you're thinking of? No, not that heavyweight <laughs> champ either. At number 5, it's Vitali Klitschko. Uh, he was forced to retire in 2005 after suffering one injury after another. He was the champ, he was 34 years old, he just couldn't get healthy and stay healthy, so he walked away. And in 2008, feeling good again, he decided to make a comeback at age 37. He took on 30-1 Sam Peter for a title belt in his first fight in nearly four years, and he proceeded to go 10-0 and 0 with seven KOs over the next four years, beat a bunch of good heavyweights, handed four fighters their first defeats, and then retired again at 41 with really nothing left to prove as long as he and his brother were never going to fight each other, which, of course, they weren't. Uh, Vitali Klitschko, fairly remarkable and perhaps underrated dominant second act. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh,
1: I, I had definitely would have had him on, on my top five list. And I vaguely recall being probably one of many who grumbled and moaned a little bit when he came back and thought it was a horrendously bad idea because he was so obviously falling apart when mm-hmm. he did retire. It seemed like this was the retirement that was absolutely going to stick and there was no way he could come back. And to come straight out of the gate and beat Sam Peter uh, was just incredibly impressive. And yes, like you said, a, a really good, solid, um, comeback and, like you said, didn't,
0: unlike a lot of the other comebacks, didn't wait until he started losing again. Right. Proved what he had to prove, walked away. Very yeah. impressive. Okay. Uh, so my number four is another one. I had trouble placing. Uh, at one point, I had this guy at number two. I had him as low as number five. It's someone we've talked about plenty in recent months because he was a focus of the Kings docuseries. It's Sugar Ray Leonard. Yep. Here's why it is one of the absolute great career comebacks of all time. He has a detached retina, which at the time is usually career-ending. He retires in 82, tries a comeback in 84, and struggles against Kevin Howard and decides, that's it, I'm done for good. And then he comes back after three years of inactivity to beat the Hall of Fame-bound middleweight champion of the world, Marvin Hagler. Here's why I ultimately didn't put Sugar Ray in my top three. He wasn't old at all when the comeback began. He was 30 when he fought Hagler. There remains debate over whether he deserved to beat Hagler. Uh, yeah. And after Hagler, was the rest of his career actually very good? Yeah. He went 2-2-1, two, two beat Donnie Lalonde, was lucky to get a draw against Tommy Hearns, won a stinker against Roberto Duran, and lost badly to Terry Norris and Hector Camacho. He made a lot of money in that second career, but did he really have a great career comeback? I say no, he just had maybe the single greatest first fight back after a long retirement, and that is good enough to land him at number four on my list.
1: I had a similar problem, and I don't know whether I would have had him in my top five or not for that very reason. It almost would have been a better comeback if he just walked away again after Hagler, right? Uh, uh, So, yeah, absolutely. I'm with you right there. Okay. Okay.
0: Uh, at number three, I have the person I assume you were alluding to last week when you said a fighter didn't have to be coming back from a retirement. Um, and again, I really struggled with where to place this person, but I settled on number three and it is Muhammad Ali. Is yep. Is that who you were alluding to? Absolutely. Okay. Yes. All right. So listeners are probably unfamiliar with the story of Muhammad Ali. So let me just <laughs> recap his entire career here. Um, now, so he was in exile for three and a half years of what would have been his prime due to his stance on the Vietnam War, came back and had a second career that, on its own, without his first career, you just take Ali from 1970 to 80 and what he accomplished— He's probably a top five all-time heavyweight just based on that. Um, I don't need to rehash what he accomplished. Everyone knows. The reason he isn't higher on my list, and you know some people might have him at number two or maybe even number one, is that he was still young when the comeback began. He was 28, so other than ring rust and having to get back into fighting shape, he wasn't overcoming all that much, you know, compared to others on my list. Vinny Paz with the broken neck, Vitaly with all his injuries and being in his late 30s, Sugar Ray with the detached retina and actually being retired twice already. That's where the Ali career comeback falls a tiny bit short for me, but still good enough for number three. Yeah,
1: I'm very curious to see what your other two are going to be, because I had in my mind three that separated themselves from the rest. Okay. And I'm very, but. And this also, was one of those three? This was one of them. Okay. And also struggled to decide where I would have put them if I was doing this list. Um, I have no problem with them being number three. I would have had no problem with them being number one. Uh, I'm very curious now to see what your one and two are <laughs> and see if we have the same top
0: three. All right. Well, one of them, I'm sure, is the same person when we get to my number one. I'm sure he okay. is in your top three. My number two might be one of your top three. I'm not sure. Um, this is uh, someone that the the non-hardcore fans might not have thought of, might not even know much about. Uh, This man, not Ali, was considered... The pound for pound best in boxing for the first half of the 1960s. He is now, at age 85, one of boxing's oldest living champions, maybe the oldest. Uh, our research intern can check on that for us. Um, right. I am talking about the Brazilian icon, Eder Joffrey. <laughs> um, so, Joffrey was a dominant, undefeated bantamweight champion until fighting Harada dethroned him in 1965. Harada won the rematch as well in 66, and Joffrey retired. And then three years later, at age 33, which was ancient for a little guy back then, yep. he got the itch, made a comeback. Now he was a featherweight, and in 1973, at age 37, he defeated Jose Legra for a featherweight belt. He successfully defended the title by knockout over Hall of Famer Vicente Saldivar. Joffre ultimately went 25-0 and in his second career before retiring again at age 40. Just remarkable, and so I feel strongly that he belongs at number two above the much more well-known comeback story of Ali. Uh, I think it's now pretty clear that we have the same top three. <laughs> I figured you seem to be kind of uh, verbally nodding along with me there. Yeah,
1: Yeah. absolutely. Amazing. What an incredible comeback this is. Uh, still, fighting Harada was the only guy to stop him. The one thing I didn't know about that, I had no idea Eddie Joffrey was still alive. That's uh, that's impressive yeah. to know. Yeah, uh, yeah what, a, what a comeback and, and what a fighter. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Okay. And I think everyone knows who my number yeah. one is. Um, for me, like I said, there's really no debate here. George Foreman quit the sport in 1977 after losing to Jimmy Young. He'd lost his way, lost his confidence, found religion, became a preacher, and that was it. At just 28 years old, he was done with boxing until a full decade later. At age 38, now fat and bald, he launched a comeback. (laughs) Nobody took him seriously. He was a sideshow. He was given as much chance of reclaiming the heavyweight title as either Paul Brother would be now of becoming a champion of the world and we all know what happened. He beat Kawi, Cooper, Cooney, got a shot at Evander Holyfield and gave him a hell of a fight. But he wasn't satisfied with coming close. In 1994, closing in on his 46th birthday, it happened!
2: It happened.
0: (laughs) He knocked out Michael Moore to become the oldest heavyweight champ ever. And thanks to the George Foreman grill, he has enough money to go into outer space with Bezos and Musk if he wants to. Uh, But he's not a big enough asshole to pull that crap. Uh, But uh, easily (laughs) for me, the greatest career boxing comeback ever has to be the second career of George Foreman
1: yeah i have all these different guys and i've got notes about them with dates and whatever and <laughs> then i just have george foreman yeah <laughs> like no you, you know and muhammad ali like there's just i'm not wasting time putting notes down here <laughs> right so yeah exactly so we do have the same top three okay. uh, you know i didn't go to a real effort to rank them but i did feel that those three did separate themselves a little bit from the rest and i don't know that there's a wrong order
0: really with with those three so yeah absolutely Okay. Who else you got as your runners-up? All right. So here are all my honorable mentions. I'll try and go through them quickly. Uh, Sugar Ray Robinson won the middleweight mm-hmm. title three more times after his almost three-year-long first retirement. Um, if it hadn't been for Foreman's comeback overshadowing his, I think Larry Holmes' comeback would be mm-hmm. more marveled over, although he might not have tried it if not for Big George. Um, I mentioned Vicente Saldivar as an Ed Air Joffrey opponent, but Saldivar won a title himself after about a two-year retirement. I think Willie Pep is worth mentioning. Yep because he did great things even after suffering serious injuries in a plane crash. Uh, Remarkable. Um, Eric Morales, had he beaten Marcos Maidana and not just come close to beating Marcos Maidana, he might have warranted more serious consideration. I want to mention Mike Tyson. Um, You know, yeah, he was diminished as hell after jail, and and he never beat another great fighter, but he did win title belts, and he did make a ton of money after three-plus years in prison. And how about his namesake, Tyson Fury, who retired young and has come back strong so far, uh, losing about 150 pounds and establishing himself as the number one heavyweight in the world. Um, Another heavyweight uh, who is quite familiar with Tyson Fury, Vladimir Klitschko, seemed done after two bad KO losses and came back to become an all-time great. Different kind of comeback there. Mm -hmm. Um, And then just a bunch of quick mentions here. James Toney. Uh, presumed washed before his cruiserweight and heavyweight resurgence. Johnny Tapio went on a career best run after jail and drug problems and all that. Um, Here's one I wouldn't have thought of without a little uh, internet research coming across his name reminding me. Anthony Crolla had his skull fractured by burglars. So he did. Yeah, and came back and won a belt. Um, Manny Pacquiao, still going nearly 10 years after being knocked cold by Marquez, the kind of defeat a lot of fighters don't come back from. Uh, Another ongoing comeback right now, Roman Chocolatito-Gonzalez. And lastly... I think both of these guys deserve consideration, Mickey Ward and Arturo Gatti. They both had tremendous second acts after they were presumed to be finished. Uh, and it's interesting that the the end of Mickey's second act marked the beginning of Arturo's second
1: yeah. act. Yeah. So uh,
0: any others that, uh, that I didn't mention there that were on your list?
1: No, you actually got a couple there that I uh, wouldn't have thought of. Um, there was a might have been one or two in there that I kind of thought of like Morales. So I kind of yeah. thought of and was like, yeah. And I was the same with Tyson. I'm like, mm, kind of got to put him on here, I guess. <laughs> uh, also had Holmes. Uh, you had you had Ray Robinson, mm-hmm. Willie Pep. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the amazing thing about Willie Pep is the career after the, uh, the the plane crash was, I think, just about as long as the one before the plane right. crash. Uh, and the, just the other note that has nothing to do with the comeback. Just that willie pep ended his career with a record of 220 10 and one <laughs> i mean yeah and before the plane crash was 108 one and one so right. yeah yeah, yeah. making it to 50 and O does not make you the greatest just saying
0: <laughs> that seems like a, a pointed comment like there's someone oh, who made oh, it to 50 and 0 oh that oh, oh. you have in just mind a, just a random comment i felt like throwing out there <laughs> okay fair enough
1: no so, great list i'm glad you enjoyed it and i'm really glad that I didn't put any restrictions on it. Like I, like I right. said, I nearly went with the, you got to be out of the ring for two years, but that would have taken out Willie Pep and Vinnie Paz, or you've got to have announced your retirement. That would have taken out a lot of people. So right. yeah, I'm, I'm glad we, we sort of just left it open like
0: that. Yep. Excellent uh, challenge. I enjoyed it. And, um, I cannot promise you that I will come up with as excellent a challenge for you next week, but I can promise you I'll try
1: my second
0: five favorite Miguel Cotto fights. (laughs) I don't think you're getting that one.
1: (laughs) All right. That will do it for this week's edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Thanks again to Gordon Hall for joining us. And don't forget to tune in this Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific for the 20th anniversary edition of Showbox, the new generation. Uh, We will be back during the week with bonus podcasts to mark Showbox's anniversary. And of course, we'll return next Monday morning with our regularly scheduled programming, including our recap of Friday's card and Eric's next top five challenge to me. Until then, thank you for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.